welcome to the Freak Show, fellow freaks. I'm Matthew Brockmeyer. I'm Krista Carmen. And this is Murder Coaster. Step right up, step right up, and don't miss out on the third and final installment of our Freeway Killer series. If you think our last episodes were terrifying and nerve-shattering, we've got a surprise for you. For today's Freeway Killer is the most dangerous, cunning, devious, and deadly of them all. He's also more sadistic, brutal, and horrifying as well. Today, ladies and gentlemen, we bring you the tale of a man with many names and many faces. He's the scorecard killer, the Southern California strangler, the true freeway killer. He is the disgusting and utterly vile Randy Kraft. Randy Kraft murdered 67 young men across three states, making him one of the most prolific American serial killers to ever exist. We have this number because Randy Kraft wrote down each of his killings in code on what would later be called a scorecard. Like Patrick Kearney, the first freeway killer we covered, Randy Kraft was a cunning, careful, and devious killer. And his span of crimes would last 12 years, from 1971 to 1983. But unlike Kearns, who murdered unsuspecting victims quickly with a gunshot to the head, Randy Kraft was much like last week's freeway killer, William Bonin, in that he was a sadist who delighted in torture. His method of killing and disposing of bodies were also similar to Bonin's, and their victims were, in fact, confused by law enforcement at the time. Though we can now see that there were very distinct differences, which we will get into later in the show. Randy Stephen Kraft was born March 19, 1945, in Long Beach, California. Unlike William Bonin, who was born into a literal hellscape of violence and sexual abuse, or even Patrick Kearney, who moved often and was terribly bullied in elementary school, Randy Kraft had a very stable and loving childhood. He was the youngest of the family and the only son, having two older sisters who doted on him. But at just two years old, Randy fell down a set of concrete stairs, hitting himself in the head and knocking him unconscious. It should be noted that nearly all serial killers are reported to have had severe head trauma prior to their killing, and this is thought to be a factor in their poor impulse control. Last week's freeway killer, William Bonin, had literal scars on his frontal lobe. While these head traumas don't explain their dark thoughts and fantasies or why they desire to kill, they can help to understand why these killers aren't able to control their impulses and often act so recklessly. As an adult, during his trial, Randy Kraft would have his brain scanned and the results would show lethargic electrical activity in the frontal lobes where judgment is controlled and abnormally high activity in the temporal lobe that governs emotion and sex drive. When Randy was three years old, his family moved from Long Beach to Westminster, California, where they lived a wholesome, all-American 1950s life of white picket fences and upward mobility. In high school, 
Randy was part of a group called the Three Musketeers. They were three best friends, the other two being Billy Manson and Paul Whitson. All three had been identified in state intelligence testing as mentally gifted minors and were given special accelerated college preparatory status. While Paul was going to be a scientist, Randy and Billy were going to become Republican senators. The three youths were so far right-wing, they considered Nixon a liberal and actually idolized Joseph McCarthy and William F. Buckley. They read the National Review and went to meetings of the Christian anti-communist crusade. All three had buzz cuts and wore starched white button-up shirts, and both Billy and Paul wore thick horn-rimmed glasses. But unlike Patrick Kearney, who was also very nerdy, and dressed exactly the same, but was relentlessly bullied by Texas rednecks for doing so. The three musketeers were very accepted. Orange County, California is a notoriously conservative and right-wing place, the home of Richard Nixon, and where Ronald Reagan would go on to announce his 1984 re-election campaign. And the city of Westminster was a clean-cut and respectable stronghold of traditional conservative values. Westminster was founded as a Presbyterian temperance colony, farmers even refusing to grow grapes because they could be turned into wine and were associated with alcohol. Randy's mother and sisters were devoutly Presbyterian. His sister Doris sang in the choir, and his mother was chairman of the deacons committee. She was also a PTA officer at Randy's elementary school and baked cookies for his Cub Scout meetings. They were a regular leave-it-to-beaver type family. When the Three Musketeers were freshmen in Westminster High, they formed a Westminster World Affairs Club and passed resolutions condemning the United Nations for being too liberal and pledging support to the anti-communist John Birch Society. Randy regularly wrote impassioned right-wing essays, which were considered so well-written they were entered into a Rotary Club and Kiwanis contests, and he won many awards for them. Randy worked summer vacations at a hamburger stand in Huntington Beach and saved up enough money to buy himself a 53 Mercury. He dated and hung out in the local pizza place where he and his friends would discuss politics. He was all American as can be, and in 1963, he graduated from Westminster High School, 10th in his class. He applied for a scholarship to the prestigious Claremont Men's College and was accepted. In college, Randy continued with his conservative values, enrolling in the Reserve Officers Training Corps and regularly attending demonstrations in favor of the Vietnam War and campaigned for far-right Republican presidential candidate Barry Goldwater. But in 1964, things began to slowly change. Randy says he was aware he was gay in high school, but suppressed it. But with the independence afforded by college, he began to embrace his homosexuality. He became a bartender at The Mug, a Garden Grove cocktail lounge which catered to the LGBTQ community. He also began to frequent known gay hookup spots where men could engage in quick, casual sex. And in 1966, he was arrested for lewd conduct after propositioning an undercover police officer. In many ways, it was basically illegal to be gay back then, at least openly. But Randy was defiant, and this seems to have galvanized him. He grew his hair longer, registered as a Democrat, began to champion liberal views, 
and campaigned for Robert Kennedy. He also began to indulge in drugs and alcohol, playing in all-night poker games, and his grades suffered severely. He failed an economics class, which caused him to graduate a year late in February of 1968. Despite his newfound liberalism and anti-war stance, in June of 1968, Randy joined the Air Force. Perhaps knowing that his college deferment was gone, he figured it would be better than being drafted. And with his college degree, he could find a career of sorts. He did excellent on his aptitude tests, scoring consistently in the 90s and securing a secret security clearance. You may remember last week that William Bowden also joined the Air Force at around the same time. But while Bonham was made a helicopter gunner and put right into action, Kraft was kept right there in sunny Southern California and stationed in Edwards Air Force Base, where he was a protective coding specialist. Protective coding specialist has a slightly glamorous ring to it, but in actuality, he was simply painting test airplanes. And when the base ran out of test planes for him to paint, they had him painting houses on the base. This was not his idea of what a Claremont economics graduate should be doing, and he was quite miffed. He also hated the grinding routine, the manual labor, and the lousy food. So Randy boldly went and told his supervising officer that he was a homosexual, which resulted in him receiving a general discharge under medical reasons, meaning he would not receive any GI benefits While not as much of a rebuke as a dishonorable discharge, it's still a stigma that he knew would haunt him. He could say goodbye to his dreams of ever becoming a senator, and many employers would be loath to hire him now. He fought it, filing a formal protest, but was denied. It sounds harsh, but he's actually lucky he didn't get a dishonorable discharge or end up in jail, which is what would have happened to him if he'd been caught in the act. Homosexuality was actually illegal in the military at the time. And he also went on to inform his parents of his sexual orientation. His father flew into a rage. His mother was somewhat accepting, but hoped it was just a phase he would outgrow. His childhood Presbyterian neighbors all fretted over the fate of his immortal soul when they heard the news. Free from the military and the draft, Kraft immerses himself in the gay lifestyle, becoming a bartender at a gay bar called the Bowie Shed, and began frequenting other gay bars like Broom Hilda's and Stables, and gets himself an apartment in Long Beach. Long Beach has long been a haven for gay culture, going back to World War II, when it was a booming home port for much of the Pacific fleet. Sailors who had been out at sea and yearned for sex stalked the dive bars along Ocean Boulevard at night, lonely and desperate, looking for anyone to hook up with, either male or female. And the locals claim that after the war, the gay sailors stayed and created their own subculture there. On the surface, it would appear that Randy Kraft had found a community where he could thrive and finally be himself, bask in the acceptance of gay culture. You'd think it would be a time of happiness, pride, and celebration. But... In March of 1970, a very sinister and dark side of Randy Kraft revealed itself. Joey Francher was a tough 13-year-old SoCal kid. He hated school, hated the teachers that were always hassling him. He hated school, the teachers were always hassling him, 
smart ass kids all thought they were better than him. He hated his parents, especially his stepfather, who often beat him for any infraction. His only joy was cruising around on his bike. And in March of 1970, Joey was riding his bike on the Huntington Beach boardwalk when he would have the most unfortunate encounter with Randy Kraft. Joey, who noticed Kraft staring at him, asked the stranger if he had a cigarette. Randy said yes and offered him one. Joey unloaded to Kraft about his life, explained he was sick of his stupid school and parents and was running away from home. Kraft, who by now had bleached his hair blonde and taken to wearing Hawaiian shirts, giving off that total Southern California beach life vibe, asked the 13-year-old if he'd like to smoke some weed and drink some beer. The kid readily agreed. And then, to really seal the deal, Randy asked him if he'd like to lose his virginity. He told him he knew of a woman who would want to have sex with the young kid. When Randy asked if he'd like that, the kid said yes, which you know, really shows not only how naive this kid was, how stupidly innocent and trusting, but also just how incredibly horny teenage boys can be. Randy had the kid hop on his motorcycle and the two drove off to his Long Beach apartment. Inside, they smoked a little weed and Randy offered him some pills, Secondal, a powerful sedative. Joey took eight of them, washing them down with some cheap wine. Then as his head was spinning and the pills were kicking in, Randy set a stack of eight by 10 black and white photographs in front of him. The photos were pornographic images of men having sex with each other. And Joey nervously noted that Randy was a participant in quite a few of them. When Randy asked him if he'd ever had sex with a man before, the kid said no, stood up to leave, and fell over. The next thing he knew, he was on the bed, and the man had taken all his clothes off. Joey said he felt like a rag doll as Randy Kraft repeatedly raped him, threatening to kill him the entire time. Then Randy stood up, said he had to go to work, and left. Yeah, he just cruises and goes to work, leaving the kid there alone. Joey managed to get himself up and get his shirt and pants back on, then stumbled out onto the street. He ends up sitting on a curb, weeping hysterically, and someone calls the cops and an ambulance. He's brought to the hospital where his stomach is pumped. His parents showed up. They were more upset that he'd lost his new shoes in the ordeal than the fact that he'd been drugged by a stranger. The cops accompany Joey and his stepfather back to Randy's apartment, barge in without a warrant. They find Joey's shoes neatly tucked under the bed. They also find two peanut butter jars full of pills, one with Benzedrine, a type of speed, and the other second all, uppers and downers. They also find a bag of weed and random vials of prescription pills, and they note that there was gay stuff everywhere from flyers for gay bars to actual pornography. The police contemplated bringing charges, but since they'd entered without a warrant, they couldn't charge Kraft for the drugs. And out of shame, Joey never told them he'd been raped, just that he'd eaten pills voluntarily and passed out. So they simply filed a report, and that was that. The report would sit in a filing cabinet untouched for the next 13 years. 
Joey says his stepfather beat him with a board when they got home for embarrassing him by getting picked up by a quote-unquote fruitcake and then doing drugs. And such was life in the early 70s. Yeah, jeez. Uh, it appears Randy, I know, it's like, poor kid. It appears Randy had let his mask slip and shown young Joey the monster that lay within him. After that, Randy would be extremely careful to not let anyone who saw his true self, the raging beast within him, live to tell the tale. They'd be dead and dutifully marked in code on Randy's scorecard sheet. In September of 1971, a bartender at Randy's favorite bar, Stables, named Wayne Duquette, went missing. His car was found parked by the beach where he'd last been seen. Weeks later, his body was found in a ravine off the Ortega Freeway, so bloated and putrefied that they couldn't determine the cause of death. His blood alcohol was a staggering 0.36, an amount so high that acute alcohol poisoning was actually listed as the cause of death. Although Randy never confessed to this murder, or any murder for that matter, we can be fairly certain that this was his first murder, because it is the first one listed on his scorecard, titled simply Stables, which was the bar where Wayne worked and was last seen. Many, many of Randy Kraft's victims had alcohol levels like this. But to this day, we don't know exactly how he was able to make his victims drink that much. It had to maybe be under the force of threat, you'd think. Much of Kraft's methods are a mystery. How he was able to dump bodies from a moving car. How he was able to secret corpses away in crowded conditions. And whether he ever had an accomplice. Right. Unlike the other freeway killers who all immediately confessed and gave chilling details about their crimes, Randy Kraft has never disclosed anything at all about his methods or victims. Though the state of their recovered bodies shows showed acts of disturbing torture. It is also clear in the way his victims would have massive amounts of alcohol and Valium in their systems that Randy wanted a docile victim. Given this knowledge, it is interesting to compare Randy to our other freeway killers. Patrick Kearney, as we've said, was a product killer and a necrophile. Like Jeffrey Dahmer, he wanted them dead, utterly passive. While William Bonin was a process killer, and a sadist. He loved it when they kicked and squirmed and screamed and fought. He was all about the process of killing, not the product it resulted in. It appears Randy Kraft was right in the middle of these two dichotomies. He wanted them alive and was obviously extremely sadistic. But with the near-lethal combination of Valium and alcohol, he somehow coerced his victims to consume they had to be semi-comatose. He's dehumanized them to the point of dolls, but at the same time, he wants them still alive. I think it's safe to say he just didn't want them to be able to fight back. Yeah, and uh, I think you bring up an interesting point there, particularly as many of his victims were Marines that were much, much larger than him. Men literally trained to kill. But uh, we'll get more into that later. In 1972, Kraft campaigned for Democrat John McGovern's run for president. 
This campaign was famously reported on and turned into a book by famed gonzo journalist Hunter S. Thompson called Fear and Loathing on the Camp Campaign Trail. But uh, luckily, there seems to be no mention of Randy Kraft in it at all. It's an iconic and important book, a testament to the cultural shifts in America at the end of the 60s and beginning of the 70s. And that asshole craft, even being somehow superficially acknowledged, that, that would have sucked. It's important to note that John McGovern was seen as ultra left wing back then. Today, he'd be the equivalent to Bernie Sanders or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, basically a socialist Democrat. Yeah, and McGovern was the guy Nixon's people were caught breaking into the Watergate Hotel to spy on that led him to resign years later after he won in a landslide. A very interesting and polarizing time in history that is actually not too unlike today's political climate, honestly. Yeah, touche. <laughs> and that aircraft also went to his high school reunion. Remember, in high school, he had been a staunch Republican anti-communist with a buzz cut and starched button-up white shirt. Now he was a shaggy-headed McGovern supporter in bell-bottoms, telling his square friends that weed should be legal. As the 70s began to roll onward, Randy started studying computers at Long Beach State University. He quit his job as a bartender and found employment at Aztec Aircraft, where he ran the computer payroll typing wages and hours manually into the machines, producing spreadsheets and statistics. He would have a long and storied career in data entry. And, you know, I've actually done data entry at a thriving school in San Diego. It is mind-numbingly dull. It's interesting how he thrives at this work for years. It seems like he can turn his brain off, like become a machine I think this points to how he was able to compartmentalize and disassociate, basically turn his conscious mind off, which is a trait that is very common to serial killers. At Long Beach University, Randy also found love, meeting longtime boyfriend Jeff Graves. The two really hit it off. And though they maintained a polyamorous relationship, they considered themselves a serious couple and moved in together finding a place within walking distance of the gay bars of Long Beach. They'd stroll the streets in the afternoon, walking hand in hand, and cruise the bars at night. They were very active in the gay community, especially at Club Ripples, their favorite establishment to socialize in. Here we see another side of Randy that is different than the other two freeway killers as well. While Patrick Kearney was openly gay, he was also notoriously shy and introverted and was too awkward to become a part of the blossoming LGBTQ community. Plus, he didn't drink, and the gay social life was centered around bars. And William Bonin, well, he was just too crude and rude and immature for the LGBTQ community. He'd experimented with going to gay bars in Los Angeles, and told friends he wanted to be more involved in the gay scene, but he was like a bull in a china shop. Too much of a shit-talking psycho. Too much of a bully. He instead collected a crowd of lost souls and weird teenagers that he enlisted in the aid of his crimes. Randy and his boyfriend Jeff are social butterflies of this scene, but they are also partying hard. 
booze, weed, bennies, amyl nitrate, sleeping around, experimenting with the bondage and leather scene. It all led them to get into huge fights. And when they'd fight, Randy would get in his car and drive, just drive and drive, driving along the freeways and byways of Southern California. This is exactly what Patrick Kearney would do as well whenever he'd fight with his boyfriend, David Hill. Both Kearney and Kraft were doing the same thing, anger driving, alone, after arguments with their partners. And while I'm sure they were enjoying the incredible Southern California scenery, the hills and ravines, deserts and beaches, the Pacific Ocean stretching out to the horizon, they were also looking for lonely, abandoned places to commit their heinous crimes and eyeing up potential victims. And it's around this time corpses began appearing abandoned on the freeways of Southern California. 20-year-old Edward Daniel Moore was one of them. In Randy's scorecard book, he was titled EDM. Just his initials, but very obvious. On Christmas Eve, 1972, Edward Moore's body was found naked, bound, beaten with a blunt instrument, most likely an iron pipe, and strangled to death. The corpse had been pushed from a moving vehicle on the 405 freeway. A sock had been inserted into his anus, which was a method the military used to keep the body from purging liquids. The sock also led to speculation that the victim had been tortured and killed far from the dump site, and the killer hadn't wanted liquids dirtying his vehicle. What? (laughs) Yeah. A Long Beach State University art student named Vincent Mestez was found by hikers at the bottom of a ravine in the San Bernardino Mountains. He was clothed but missing his shoes, and a sock had been forced inside his rectum. His head had been shaved after death, and both his hands were cut off. Because he was bisexual and had been known to hustle sex at the Belmont Shore Bluffs, his murder was considered a gay crime and not fully investigated. Now, we should point out, the Long Beach police not only didn't investigate gay crimes at this time, they actually denied that there was even a gay community in Long Beach, despite it having these historical gay roots and there being a plethora of infamously gay bars like Impact, Forced Heat, and The Mine Shaft. The police refused to believe or acknowledge or care there was a serial killer even when the number got up to 11. Police actively dehumanized gay men and denied the thriving gay culture existed. They attributed all the victims who had gone missing from Long Beach as gay men who had gotten into rough sex or an argument during a one-night stand, and that they'd gotten what was coming to them. As long as it was a gay-on-gay crime, police looked the other way, hoping to let them kill themselves off. Gay men were considered the less dead. But naked and near-naked bodies of young men with socks in their rectums just kept piling up, and the degradation was amping up as well. An unidentified victim was found outstretched on the Terminal Island freeway in a particularly gruesome manner. His genitals had been removed, the wound still oozing blood because they had been severed when he was still alive, the heart still pumping blood. He'd also had his eyelids removed, investigators assumed, so that he couldn't shut his eyes while he was being tortured. 
God, that's a new one. God. It just gets worse and worse. <clears throat> then, then on Easter Sunday, the body of Kevin Bailey was found on the highway by Huntington Beach after being thrown out of a moving vehicle. While this would become Randy Kraft's modus operandi, dumping mutilated bodies from a moving vehicle, almost always with a sock in the rectum, and with immense amounts of alcohol and Valium in their bloodstream, he did experiment. One to this day unidentified was dismembered, decapitated, and spread over multiple locations. His head was found behind a supermarket in a paper bag. His arms, torso, and right leg were found in trash bags along the freeway, and the left leg was found behind the Bowie Street Bar where Kraft used to work. Some actually speculate that this might have been a victim of Patrick Kearney because the body was dismembered and the parts put in the garbage bags, which was Kearney's signature and M.O. But because there were ligature marks on the body, in other words, he'd been tied up and his eyelids and genitals had been removed, most agree it's definitely Randy Kraft. Kearney didn't tie his victims up. He killed them with a gunshot to the head before they even knew what was happening or suspected anything. It would also be quite the crazy coincidence if another freeway killer was dumping body parts behind a bar where Kraft had worked. That would be insane, but I guess stranger things have happened. Right? Also, this victim's hands and feet were removed. Patrick Kearney almost always left all the body parts in the same location. The only body Patrick Kearney ever did that to was David Hill's friend, John LeMay, because he knew John LeMay could be traced back to him and was trying to hide the evidence. Most believe this victim was the one labeled Hoff-Hoff Head on Randy Kraft's scorecard. Many also speculate that this murder may have been a tip of the hat to Kearney, an acknowledgement. So creepy and messed up. They're sending little messages to each other. Ugh. Yeah, and... uh. Kearney, he told investigators that he was well aware there was another killer at work. Ronnie Weeb, the next victim, was covered in bite marks. His genitals nearly chewed off. But there was also something else distinct about him. He was very much a heterosexual. He was a married man who had recently been separated for having an affair and now had a new girlfriend. It was also, very obviously, the same killer. The body was tossed from a moving vehicle with a sock in the rectum, and the same exact place as Eddie Moore six months earlier. Now the investigation was no longer that of gays killing gays, something that could be tolerated. Now that straight men were being actively targeted, the police were becoming forced to respond. Randy was also targeting Marines. Young, blonde Marines, in particular, become a target for Randy. Camp Peddleton was only an hour away, and every weekend the beach towns would be flooded with Marines, many of them hitchhiking as a means of transportation. One Marine, who wouldn't realize how close he'd come to death, described how he met Randy Kraft on the beach in Laguna, and the two began talking. This is uh, actually really fascinating. He says Randy was friendly and interesting. And when Randy told him he had some good beer in his hotel room, he went with his new friend. Good beer was an easy way to get Marines to hang out with you back in the day because they could only afford shitty beer. So the two went up to Randy's room. 
After talking for hours, Randy came on to him, but the Marine told him he was straight and wasn't interested in anything like that. But he also said no one had ever made him feel so alive or beautiful and that it felt they'd become best friends. The Marine even allowed Randy to photograph him with his shirt off. Of course, Randy was probably spiking the guy's beer with Valium, which always gives you a sense of euphoria. And indeed, when the guy's head started spinning after only a few beers, he split. But one thing he remembers was the room. It was on the second floor, right above the strip. So you could look down and see everyone entering and exiting the bars. And over to the left, there was the freeway, meaning you could drive away from the motel and directly onto the freeway. This Marine, he was a sniper. And he thought this room would be an excellent location to set up a sniper base because it was so strategic. Oh, my God, that is chilling. <laughs> right. <sighs> it's fascinating oh, the way he the way he smooths this guy. You know, this yeah. guy is like doesn't kill him. Like, see, it's almost like he's trying to impress him because he gave him a compliment. I don't know. It's bizarre. The and... guy said he he never felt so loved. So weird. Ugh. Well, another Marine by the name of Roger Dickerson would not be so fortunate. Roger told his friends he'd found a ride to Los Angeles and he'd see them later. But he was found dead on a dead end street in Laguna Beach, naked, a sock in his rectum with his nipples and penis chewed off. And three more Marines would be murdered between August and November of 1974 followed by a 17-year-old high school student named John LaRaz. But in March of 1975, Randy did have a very close brush with the law. Randy picked up two teenagers named Keith Crotwell and Kent May on the Laguna Beach parking lot, luring them into his black-and-white 74 Ford Mustang with the offer of free beer. Once inside, he offered them some Valium, giving them a straight-up handful each. These kids had to be very inexperienced with drugs to eat that many volume. Yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, so Randy just dumped the pills in his hand like they were candy and said, here, eat these. The two were soon out cold. Randy then returned to the parking lot where he'd picked them up, pushed open the passenger door and shoved May out onto the sidewalk, completely unharmed, then sped off with Crotwell slumped against his shoulder. Fortunately, friends of May saw the incident and took him home, where he woke up in the morning not knowing how he ended up in his bed. One thing this shows is how Randy could somehow get the passenger door of his car open and throw a body out. And I still wonder how he was able to do that so easily. I mean, I wonder if he had like a wire or a pole or something. It's it's crazy. Yeah, it seems. But I don't know. I it's like if he picked a room that a Marine thought was a strategic, you know, the most strategic room to see things. It's like you can only imagine that solving a small problem, like how to figure out how to open your door while you're driving. He probably did have some crazy tool that he could just easily open the door and then pull it back in. He's truly terrifying, devious character. Yeah. Uh, okay, so... Five weeks later, Crotwell's decapitated head was found between some rocks on a jetty close to the Long Beach Marina. 
two of Crotwell's friends went on a mission to find the guy in the black and white Mustang, following a rumor that he'd once worked in one of the gay bars as a bartender. And these two kids found the car. Totally Scooby-Dooed it. And it was just a mile away from the parking lot where Crotwell had gone missing. They wrote down the license plate number and gave it to the police. It came back registered to Randy Kraft. The police questioned Randy Kraft, and at first, he denied it all. But then he changed his story. Yes, he did pick up two kids one night, and he had rode off with May. But May had wandered off after Randy got his car stuck on an exit ramp in the desert. The police, well, they could even ask Randy's roommate, who he'd have to call in the middle of the night to help him push the car out. Detectives were skeptical and attempted to file homicide charges against him. But the district attorney declined, citing the coroner's autopsy, which listed the death as accidental drowning. Plus, it was probably some weird, you know, weird gay stuff from their perspective that they didn't want to get involved in. Most likely two drunk lovers getting weird on the jetty, and when one fell in the water, the other was too ashamed to report it. Fucking A. These people drive me crazy. An accidental drowning. Well, what happened to his fucking body? It's just a decapitated head. Good grief. Randy was so shook up by the incident, though, that he didn't kill again for over seven months. But the next would be considered one of the most gruesome of all. On New Year's Day, 1976, the body of Mark Howard Hall would be found. Hall, an aspiring drummer from Idaho, had come to California with the dream of being in a rock and roll band. He had a 0.67 blood alcohol level, a mind-bogglingly high number, and a new method of torture had been introduced, the cigarette car lighter. He'd use it to brand his nose, scrotum, lips, and even his eyeballs. He'd also had a swizzle stick from a cocktail glass jammed into his penis so far up it ruptured his bladder. And in something new, and this is just beyond sadistic and weird, his testicles had been cut off and forced into his anus with a handful of leaves. The medical examiner determined Hall had lived through all of this torture. Ugh. Literal goosebumps in the worst way possible. Beside his body was a broken bottle of winner's vodka with a full set of fingerprints on it. Police would run the prints, but they would come up with nothing. That is, until many, many years later when they were identified as coming from a one Randy Kraft. On the home front, Randy was growing more mature and settling down. Tired of the wild swinger lifestyle, he broke up with Jeff Graves, who wasn't ready to commit, only to find a new lover, also named Jeff. This one, Jeff Selig, who soon moved in with Randy. Although appearing much more emotionally mature and stable than Graves, Selig was actually quite young, only 19, but had kept his age a secret from Randy in the beginning of their relationship, lying and saying he was in his mid-20s. Randy would later say that if he had known Jeff's real age in the beginning, he would have called it off as he was looking for a more adult relationship. But by the time he found out, he was too smitten. 
Jeff Selig was an apprentice baker who adored being a homemaker, cooking gourmet meals and decorating their apartment. Pudgy and a bit comical, he'd been described as the Lucy to Kraft's Ricky Ricardo. Selig would later say that he and Randy did sometimes go out and pick up hitchhikers, and if they were willing, bring them back to their apartment for threesomes. But he says he never saw a violent side to Randy, never saw him hurt anyone, and Jeff would remain with Randy for eight years, seemingly oblivious to his murderous ways, much like David Hill. Randy's killing slowed immensely during this time of domestic tranquility. He would kill once more in December of 1976, though. The body of 19-year-old Paul Joseph Fox has never been recovered, but he was last seen in Club Ripples, where Randy was a regular. And his name is clearly written on Randy's scorecard as expletive deleted, a sad and obvious pun to Paul's last name. After that, there would be a two-year lull in the murders. While some believe Randy may have been emotionally sated from his desire to kill by a stable relationship, it's also speculated that this long lapse in murders was because Jeff Graves had, in fact, been his accomplice, something that's never been proven to this day. Randy and Jeff Selig loved to entertain and would have bridge and poker games every week. They lived a life of seeming bliss and tranquility. Kraft began to take more computer classes, and Jeff began working in a specialty candy and pastry store called Grandma's Sugar Plums. Friends noted what an excellent couple they made. Randy, the strong and silent type, smoking a cigar in the living room, while Jeff carried out hors d'oeuvres and emptied the ashtrays. They also noticed how focused Randy would become during bridge games, losing himself in the cards. Many years later, Randy would play bridge with fellow freeway killer William Bonin on death row in San Quentin prison. The irony is like too much for me to bear. <laughs> yeah. In July of 1977, homicide detectives arrest the first of the freeway killers, Patrick Kearney, no doubt thinking the bodies would stop or at least slow down for a while. But they were very wrong. In the spring of 1978, Kraft would begin to kill again. In April of 1978, an 18-year-old Marine named Scott Hughes was found beside a freeway on ramp in Anaheim. He had a large amount of Valium in his system and had been strangled to death with a ligature, most likely his own shoelace, which was missing. His scrotum had been split open and his left testicle had been removed. On June 11th, the body of 23-year-old Roland Young was found near San Diego Freeway. He had cigarette lighter burns all over his body and incisions up and down his legs, as if the killer had been playing tic-tac-toe with a knife blade. Just eight days later, 20-year-old Marine Richard Keith was found. He'd been tossed from a vehicle and left a 90-foot-long arc of blood and flesh on the pavement before bouncing to a rest in the middle of the road. He was last seen hitchhiking in the city of Carson. Kraft noted his death as Marine Carson in his scorecard. The bodies just kept coming and coming. Many burned with a car cigarette lighter, castrated and tossed from a moving vehicle, one on Interstate 5, another on I-605, another on the 405 freeway, 
An English tourist was found dismembered in two trash bags and a cardboard box, a sock in his rectum behind a gas station in Long Beach. Kraft's scorecard simply read, England. The body of 19-year-old Gregory Jolly was found in Lake Arrowhead, decapitated and demasculated. His belongings were later found in Randy Kraft's apartment. On and on the murders went. A 15-year-old abducted from their bus stop. A Marine found missing his hands. A body dumped on the 405 on-ramp. And by this time, police must be getting completely flummoxed because now there was another freeway killer at work, William Bonin, whose murders were quite similar. But Bonin's burst of horror is short, just one year, and he is arrested in June of 1980. Coincidentally, this is also the time when Randy was being hired by Lear Sigler Industries as a data entry expert and begins to travel to Oregon for business, setting up computers for payrolls at various businesses. Perhaps sensing that with William Bonin now apprehended, he should let the police in Southern California think they'd solved the murders, or perhaps just seeing a whole new killing ground, an environment ripe for the picking where people weren't so jaded and careful, Kraft now begins to kill in Oregon. 17-year-old Michael O'Fallon left his home in Denver, Colorado for a hitchhiking trip across the United States before college. His body was discovered on July 17th, 10 miles south of Salem, Oregon, nude, hogtied, and strangled to death. Kraft listed him as Portland, Denver, and his camera, which was inscribed with his mother's initials, was later found in Randy's garage. Just the next day, Randy killed again, an older man this time, dumped on the freeway after being given toxic levels of Valium and Tylenol before being strangled. He was listed on the scorecard as Portland Elk. Randy would kill when he returned to Portland again on business later that year, dumping 17-year-old Michael Cluck on the I-5 freeway and recording him on his scorecard as Portland Blood. But he also started killing in California again as well. Marine Robert Loggins was found in a garbage bag by the El Toro Marine Air Base. Later, photographs of him naked and in pornographic poses would be found in Kraft's possession. In all of these photos, his eyes are shut, and it is unknown whether he was heavily intoxicated or already deceased. The garbage bag with his remains would be found after sitting in the sun for three days by a group of curious children. Oh, God. 17-year-old runaway Christopher Williams was found in the San Bernardino Mountains. Tissue paper had been lodged into his nostrils, causing him to choke to death. Because Williams was known to hustle the bus stops of Hollywood, in other words, he was a male sex worker, his case was labeled a misdemeanor murder by police and went completely uninvestigated. A misdemeanor murder. Misdemeanor murder fucking A. <laughs> I don't get this. Well, for whatever reasons, Kraft and Selig began to argue at this time. The two uh, even separated, but got back together. And in July of 1982, they begin attending weekly counseling sessions. And just, I don't know, I try to imagine what relationship therapy with Randy fucking Kraft was like. I know that sounds like a joke, but I mean, I just 
I don't know. He was he was also really into this thing called EST training, which is this weird kind of Scientology like cultish thing where you get up on a stage and people yell at you, breaking you down until you have like this Zen like personal transformation. Well, that sounds fucking terrible. Scientology and EST actually had an ongoing feud. L. Ron Hubbard claimed that EST had copied him and had spies enrolled in the classes, as well as detectives hired to do a smear campaign. Shit was intense, man. These training seminars, they went from 1971 to 1984, which, strangely enough, coincides with Randy's killing dates. EST sessions would start at nine in the morning and go on all day and far into the night. The training was meant to, quote, press people beyond their point of view into a perspective from which they could observe their own positionally enlightenment. It was uh, realizing you were a machine and then trying to break free of being a machine. Hmm, that makes total sense. In July of 1982, residents of Echo Park began complaining about an overwhelmingly foul smell coming from a field by the Hollywood freeway. Eventually, Cal Trans is sent to investigate, thinking it must be a dead animal. Instead, they found the decaying body of 14-year-old Raymond David, who'd last been seen searching for his dog. Kraft would mark him down as simply dog in his scorecard. There's something like particular, particularly just disgusting and dehumanizing and brutal about the way these poor victims were reduced to these like one or two words it's like infuriating absolutely Uh, and to the caltrans workers continuing horror he'd find another body just 40 feet away that of 16 year old robert avila nearly completely decomposed with a length of stereo speaker wire wrapped around his neck in december of 1982 Kraft is up in Oregon on business again. And he just goes on like this utter rampage that is mind boggling. This series of killing, it's just absolutely insane. On December 3rd, he picks up a hitchhiker, kills him, and then jumps on an airplane on the 5th and flies to Grand Rapids, Michigan for a data entry seminar at the Amway Grand Plaza Hotel. There was a horticulture seminar going on at the same time, which is why two fun-loving cousins by the names of Dennis Alt and Christopher Schonenborn were there. They were seen that evening talking to and drinking with Randy. The next day, the cousins were found in a snow-covered field. Christopher Schrodenbaum strangled with his own belt, completely naked, a ballpoint pen inserted into his urethra. Dennis all clothed and asphyxiated. They were positioned in a bizarre manner, legs spread out as if making snow angels and at a direct angle to one another so that they formed a triangle. Randy recorded this as GR2 on his scorecard, obviously short for Grand Rapids 2. Though a fellow employee later recounted how calm Randy seemed the next morning as they returned their rental car together, he was definitely in some kind of internal frenzy, 
for he flies back to Portland and immediately kills 19-year-old hitchhiker Lance Tags. It's crazy. He'd just done this insane double murder, and to this day, no one knows exactly how he did it. I mean, moving these bodies around like that in a crowded hotel, and then he just grabs a hitchhiker. He, like, sandwiched the Michigan double homicide with these two Portland hitchhikers. He's a very dangerous, deadly, and terrifying person. It's really, truly unnerving. Yeah. But investigators in Oregon are starting to put two and two together. Noting how a few times a year there's a rash of murders, all the victims full of Valium and alcohol and dumped on the side of the freeway, they figured it was someone visiting their state, most likely on business, and began reaching out to other states to see if there's similar crimes. Southern California police immediately confirm they have a lot of murders exactly like that. A lot. Back in Southern California, Randy gets laid off. He'd seen it coming. The company was downsizing. Of course, it didn't help that he'd been breaking protocol by renting the nicest cars possible when on business trips and putting an insane amount of miles on the vehicles. For instance, on one weekend trip, Randy had put over 900 miles on his rent-a-car when he was only supposed to drive from the airport to his hotel, a mere distance of 25 miles. Randy explained he'd just get driving fever and have to drive. But being laid off wasn't so bad. Now he worked for the same company, just as an independent contractor. And they were often hiring him to install systems and find bugs and glitches in systems. Now he was his own boss, didn't have to answer to anyone, which suited him just fine. Randy's sister even asked him to speak to the third grade class she taught about his career in computers. And he does. And he's the hit of the semester. She remarked how he's always been so great with children because of his lighthearted patience and consideration. And Jeff is doing great as well. He was now a full partner and frontline chocolatier for Grandma's Sugar Plums. And they had grown to two locations, the original store in Belmont, sure, and a second in the city of Cyprus. And through it all, Randy keeps right on killing. Some of the murders appearing to suggest there's an accomplice. For instance, with Eric Church, a hitchhiker found on the I-605, there's someone else's semen present. But, I mean, could Eric have been intimate with someone prior to the murders? We don't know. It just seems very suspicious. Eric's belongings were later found in Randy's house. Also, the double murder of two Bueno Park men, 18-year-old Jeffrey Nelson and 20-year-old Roger Duvall. This double murder, like the Grand Rapids, Michigan double homicide, just baffled investigators in how one person could have killed two people in the manner they did. It just seemed impossible. Some armchair sleuths believe that Roger Duvall was an accomplice to other murders and that Randy had then killed him after the two had killed Jeffrey Nelson together. Then on May 13th, 1982, Jeff Selig is invited to the first Los Angeles candy convention. Randy dutifully went and helped Jeff set up his booth. Afterwards, the two men hugged, told each other they loved each other, and Randy left. 
It would be the last time Jeff would see Randy as a free man. The next day, he called Jeff and said he'd made a terrible mistake and needed the best lawyer he could find. The night before, at one in the morning, two California Highway Patrol officers observed Randy's Toyota Celica driving erratically on Interstate 5. The car veered onto the shoulder, slowed, then sped up again before making an illegal lane change. The officers assumed the driver was drunk and flipped on their lights. Randy pulled over and immediately exited his vehicle, which struck the officers as suspicious. He also was seen dumping out a beer and tossing the bottle off to the side of the road as he approached them. As Randy approached the policeman, Officer Michael Sterling noticed that Randy's jeans were unbuttoned. Sterling had Kraft perform a sobriety test, which he failed. Randy insisting he was fine that he'd only drank three or four beers. Yeah, the old days when four beers, you were still considered to be sober. Sterling then arrested Kraft for driving while intoxicated, saying later he may not have been drunk, but he was clearly under the influence. Meanwhile, Sterling's partner, Sergeant Michael Howard, approached the Celica and observed a young man slumped in the vehicle's passenger seat, his eyelids closed, partially covered by a dark jacket. Around his feet were a couple empty beer bottles and an opened prescription bottle of lorazepam, the pills strewn about. Howard rapped on the window, attempting to wake the guy up, but he wasn't moving. So he reached in and gave him a shake only to find his skin cold and clammy. Officer Howard checked for a pulse and found none, then noticed the ligature marks around the man's neck. He lifted the jacket and saw the man's pants were unbuttoned, his fly down, and his genitalia hanging out. His lap was soaked with urine. While sitting there, Randy kept asking over and over, How's my friend? How's my friend? Kraft was initially charged with driving under the influence and held in custody as detectives called a judge requesting a search warrant to investigate the rest of the car. I guess they wanted to play it by the books and not risk anything, which is smart. But just to reiterate the gay stigma at work at the time, the judge actually asked the detective, quote, do you consider this particular homicide is a homosexually related homicide? Like, what the fuck difference does it make? Fucking hell. That's some question. Detectives then proceeded to conduct a thorough search of his vehicle. In the back seat, they found a belt, which perfectly matched the width of the ligature marks on the man's neck. There was a cooler with a couple unopened bottles of Moosehead, as well as several prescription bottles. All in all, nine different prescription drugs, including Valium and Ativan. There was a bottle of stick spell spinning spray, which I had to look up to find out what the hell it was. I, I initially thought it was some kind of amyl nitrate or popper or something. Ends up it was just cheap perfume targeted to teenage girls. Each bottle came with an incantation to recite while dabbing the scent on their neck. Spells like blood run hot, heart beat fast, warm his love. And make it last. Under the driver's seat floor mat, they found an envelope with 47 photographs, all of young men, some nude and in pornographic poses, 
and some of them obviously very dead. The passenger seat was soaked through with blood, which was very suspicious and creepy. For the body that had been sitting there had been strangled, and there was absolutely no blood leaking from it. This blood had come from someone else, and not too long ago. Whose blood this is has never been determined. It's often thought to belong to another victim who Randy hadn't had time to put on his scorecard yet. Wow. In the trunk, they found a briefcase which contained a wood-grained binder. Inside was a tablet with an oily spill in the middle of it. Neatly printed in two distinct columns were 61 notations or codes of some sort. The list began stable, then angel, then EDM, on and on, ending with Dart 405 and What You Got. The seasoned homicide detectives knew right away what it was, a list of murders. And if the numbers were correct, it meant Randy Kraft was one of the most prolific serial killers in history. Jeff Selig returned from the first annual Los Angeles Candy Convention to find his house barricaded by cops, cordoned off with police tape, and being literally torn apart by detectives. Inside the house, detectives uncovered mounds of evidence, including clothes and personal possessions of numerous young men who had been murdered over the previous decade. Fibers taken from rug matched those on victim Scott Hughes. In addition, the couch in Kraft's living room was identified as being the one in the photographs found in Kraft's car. A roll of film was discovered that contained shots of victims Eric Church and Roger Duvall sitting in Kraft's car, a ligature mark clearly visible on Duvall's neck in one of these images. But Randy Kraft proved much shrewder than the other freeway killers had been. While both Patrick Kearney and William Bonin immediately confessed, Kraft demanded a lawyer and kept his mouth shut. He never said a word. Later, he would claim the scorecard was a list of friends in the gay community, and that's why it was in code. Only 42 of the 61 entries in the card have been identified. Kraft's trial began on September 26, 1988. The trial lasted a total of 13 months and would prove to be the most expensive trial in Orange County history at a whopping $10 million. The defense relied on complicated alibis and said most of the murders had been committed by the other freeway killers, though they'd all been locked up for many years. But there was so much evidence, from fingerprints on that broken vodka bottle to photographs, fiber evidence, and a collection of jewelry and clothing he'd kept as trophies. Not to mention that corpse he had with him when he was pulled over. That that one seems like some pretty damning evidence. I mean, you would think so. I, I would think that would go pretty far. Well, the jury deliberated for 11 days before reaching their verdict. On May 12th, 1989, Kraft was found guilty of 16 counts of murder, one count of sodomy, and one count of emasculation. He was subsequently sentenced to death. And to this day, he sits on death row in San Quentin prison, where he still maintains his innocence, though 
the facts are absolutely overwhelming. As we said before, Randy spent many of his days playing bridge with the other freeway killer, William Bonin, as well as the Sunset Strip killer, Douglas Clark, and toolbox murderer, Lawrence Bittaker. And just to reiterate how cunning Kraft was, he nearly always won these bridge games, while a sad loser was almost always William Bonin. Because of his silence as well as his cunning, there is so much we don't know. How did he eject the bodies from his vehicle the way he did? How did he manage to get two corpses out of a crowded hotel during packed conventions and pose them so provocatively? Did he ever have an accomplice? The list of questions just goes on and on. There is evidence pointing to an accomplice, such as footprints in the sand close to where the body of John LaRasse was found at Sunset Beach in 1975. And in the case of Eric Church, semen samples found on his body were inconsistent with Kraft's blood type. And also, where did Randy get those photographs developed? Kraft had no darkroom equipment or even darkroom training. Many believe Kraft's former lover, Jeff Graves, may have assisted Kraft in several of the murders. Graves had lived with Kraft between 1971 and 1976, when 16 of the murders had occurred and had been questioned concerning the Crotwell abduction and murder in 1975, when he verified part of Kraft's statement to police. When questioned further about the incident following Kraft's arrest in 1983, Graves had informed investigators, I'm really not going to pay for it, you know. Which means what? It could mean anything. If Graves was an accomplice, he took it to the grave with him, because he died of AIDS on July 27, 1987 just as police were readying to question him further. Randy's other longtime boyfriend, Jeff Selig, was interrogated and investigated thoroughly. Eventually, authorities came to the conclusion that he simply had no idea what his partner was up to, and they deemed him completely innocent. Then there's Bob Jackson, who reportedly confessed to murdering two hitchhikers with Kraft one in Wyoming in 1975, and another in Colorado in 1976. Authorities in both Colorado and Wyoming were unable to corroborate these claims. Jackson also claimed that Kraft's scorecard included only his more memorable murders. In Jackson's opinion, Kraft's total body count stood closer to 100. Detectives interrogated Jackson and eventually persuaded him to enter a mental institution. No murder charges were filed against him due to an absence of direct incriminating evidence. Others believe Kraft would bring on an accomplice, similar to how William Bonin would, but then murder them as well when he felt the time was right, ensuring they never talked, as Bonin's accomplice William Poo had done. What is certain is that investigators considered gay men to be the less dead, and that's why both Patrick Kearney and Randy Kraft were able to carry on so long and with such devastating numbers. I mean, no better example can be given than that of Christopher Williams, just a 17-year-old kid, forced to earn a living on the streets as a sex worker, and then his death is listed on the books as a misdemeanor murder because he's gay and a prostitute. What the fuck is a misdemeanor murder? Makes no sense. Every murder should be a felony. 
And he was a minor. He's only 17. Ugh. And both Kraft and Bonin were caught by random chance. Kraft, he was just pulled over for erratic driving. And I think he was probably trying to eject that body out. Yes, that is 100% what I thought, too, when I saw the circumstances of what the car was doing when he was about to be pulled over. It's like, maybe we're wrong. Maybe he didn't have a sophisticated tool and he just, you know, he winged it every time and just somehow managed to get it done. Can you imagine if if the cops were following him and a fucking body came flying out? That's, uh, that is irony. <laughs> That would be a crazy, like a horror movie, like almost like Silence of the Lamb scene or something. Yeah. The body comes flying out, hits the ground, and bounces up and smashes into their windshield, goes through the windshield and ends up in their lap. That would have been some crazy shit. <laughs> write, write that idea down for a story. Later. Yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> and and uh, so he's still he's still alive and he still never talked. We know there, you know, like. We never got like the Dahmer tapes or any additional info out of him, which is crazy. No, he's he's still there. And uh, I don't know how he didn't get put to death. You know, um, Bonin uh, was put to death and uh, he I guess he just kept on, um, you know, fighting it and fighting it and, and doing all his legal tactics. And uh, now there's a moratorium. The death penalty is still legal in California. But a moratorium has been placed on it. It's been uh, almost 17 years since there was an execution. Yeah, it's so crazy. I was reading that when we, when I was preparing for this episode. I was like, what? You know, why? How can you even? Because at first I thought, like, is this like a Wikipedia mistake that he's on death row? Is it just that he's still alive? And I was like, no, it's just California does not put anybody to death in that long. So why not just abolish it? I don't know. It's crazy. Yeah, his other bridge partner, um, Douglas Clark, the uh, Sunset Strip killer, he's he's still there on death row too. Jeez, which of the three do you think was the worst? Kraft. I don't think I don't. I don't know though. I, I don't even think you can. Well, Kraft, I mean, the way he tortured his victims was just insane. Yeah, I mean, Bonham was disgusting, and he he definitely tortured them, but. I mean, Kraft took it to such a new level. I mean, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to even <laughs> re-mention some of the things that he did. It's so disgusting. Yeah, I, I guess I'm going to have to agree with you. And yep. his, his, he killed twice as many as them combined. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's my vote too. We're on the same page. It's funny you never, you never really hear about this guy either. You know, you don't. But when I again was like googling some stuff after looking at what we were going to be talking about i recognize his face i think from you know obviously being a horror writer being somebody that's interested in true crime um which I, picture I was it the, have... the blonde haired picture when he had his hair bleached blonde yeah yeah, yeah. And, and he and there's then there's the one of him like kind of looking over his shoulder in the courtroom i think he's a little bit right. older um Maybe he's not a little bit older. Maybe he just no. He is, and he looks he he looks almost like a different person. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've definitely seen. I don't know if it's like, you know, probably fall down a rabbit hole googling true crime stuff and come across if he's one of the most prolific. I'm sure he's going to be on lists and stuff. So I I had definitely come across him before. Luckily, not physically in real life in California. (laughs) (laughs) You wouldn't have any interest in you. No. Or me either, because I'm old now. Yeah. Maybe back in the day when I was young. 
Uh, just crazy. Yeah. This, this series has seriously been an eye opener, taking us back to a time and place where serial killers were a daily fact of life. And as we said in the first episode of the series, it's believed there were as many as 20 serial killers in Southern California in the late 70s and early 80s. And there was no DNA, no databases, no internet, just endless filing cabinets and a police force that were biased about which victims would be investigated. It's terrifying to think like, is the only reason that there aren't just as many serial killers today because we have so much more sophisticated technology? Like, is, is there just people walking around being like, you know, the only reason I'm not out there killing people every night on the freeway is because the goddamn, you know, security cameras that are uh, everywhere are so. Yeah, well, they they just... catch them now, you know, like that guy in Idaho. I mean, he yep, was definitely yep. going to be a serial killer, but you know, yeah. he, they had him on security cameras. They got yep. his DNA. They got all that. I I would like to think that society has changed. That people have changed. Like, I think a lot of these sex killers were either repressed or acting out. Like, I saw this documentary about Ted Bundy, and they talked about the women's rights movement and also the. Uh, sexual revolution as like maybe directly being a spark to his hatred of women because not only were they now treated more equally but they were also like you know uh just showing themselves in a more sexual nature which kind of like did something to him and enraged him and um, which is makes a lot of sense but which is like infuriating like (laughs) and like we talked about last week with uh a lot of these guys were raised by World War II veterans. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'd like to think and hope that society has maybe gotten a kinder, gentler, more intelligent, more um, compassionate. And maybe that's a reason we're not seeing as many. Yeah, it's interesting, I though. So. I I'd get too... I get too... I don't get a lot of anxiety, but I get too anxious when I look too deeply into, like, research surrounding school shootings and school mm, shooters. But yes. I wonder, like if there's been any studies that have been done about the potential, you know, are societal factors like creating less serial killer personalities and more school shoot, you know, school shooter personalities. Has there been some sort of shift? And is that why? And, you know, it's, it's a very loaded question, right? Because so much of it is like, there's so many factors that, that play into both. Like, I don't know what a study like that would look like, but I am curious. I think that you have an interesting point there. Like, a lot of potential serial killers realize they're not going to be able to get away with it. That it, the evidence is just too much and, and they're not going to be able to do these series of killings. So instead they go and do a mass killing all at once. Yeah. But then again, like they're very different creatures, the, the mass right, killer right. and the serial killer. So, you know, like when you look at the psychological profile of one versus the other. I mean, these guys are all sexually motivated, and I don't think most mass killers are. They're not getting a sexual gratification from it like these guys are. No, no, I agree. But maybe there's some not sexually motivated, but maybe like sexual rejection 
or just some, you know, some type of rejection, I think, is playing into the formation of some of these school shooters and mass killers. Absolutely. A lot of. of. uh, The whole incel thing. A lot of the incel killers there. That's. You ever read that manifesto by like that first incel mm, guy? No, I couldn't do it. I mean, I saw like bits sad. and pieces of it, but yeah. He's like, yeah. I tried to do the skateboarding, but I couldn't ollie, and the girls don't like me. You're like, Dude, oh god, so pathetic. And he's rich as fuck. You're like, his dad was like a movie producer and stuff. Yeah, like, I remember this one. Yeah, just wait a couple years, dude. Everything will turn out. <laughs> but yeah. instead. He didn't wait, and he took away the option for a bunch more people to get to wait for anything in their lives. And these weirdos on the internet consider him a hero. It's really sad. Yeah, so weird. Yeah, it, it's just a whole different world. Like serial killers were a daily thing back then, and today, mass shooting. I mean, I don't know. It's like was it yesterday or day before? I, I hit Google News, and it was what three mass shootings in one day. And see. I didn't even see any coverage of any of those. So how... It's not news anymore. Right? How just business as usual is that if like... Ugh. Yeah. Well, so what do we got coming up? Well, next week, I have got a nice creepy story for you with absolutely no sex crimes. Thank goodness. (laughs) But are there ghosts? Yes. There are lots of ghosts and a carnival. And that's all I'm saying. All right. All right. I'm excited. Well, then with that, we'll see you all next week. Thanks so much for listening, dear listeners and fellow freaks. And hey, we want to hear from you. Got a case you think we should cover? Did we get something wrong? Or do you just want to say hi? Drop us a line at murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com. That's murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com. Check you next week.